0: Welcome to Drop Everything podcast number 20. I'm the host, Dan Holzman, and number 20, that's a milestone. So we have a very special juggler for this podcast, one of the most influential and inspirational jugglers of the last 20 years, Victor Key. Great conversation with Victor Key coming up, but before we get to that, let's thank the sponsor, the International Jugglers Association, the IJA. Information about this great group of jugglers can be found at juggle.org. And of course, if you've missed any podcasts leading up to this one, they can be found at the eJuggle section at juggle.org of the IJA website. Also a big thanks to the engineer, my wife, Karen Holzman. Now, drop everything, sit back, get ready to listen to the incomparable Victor Key. What a pleasure to welcome to the Drop Everything podcast legendary juggler and artist, Victor Key. Welcome to the podcast, Victor. How are you doing?
1: Um, I'm doing well, thank you then.
0: any juggler can be considered a superhero, it's Victor Key. So let's start with the origin story of juggler Victor Key. What was your childhood like and what was your first experience with juggling and how did you first learn this skill?
1: oh uh, well it's uh, I was five si- to six years old something in the middle my brother uh, stole me from a kindergarten and brought me to a children circus school uh, in the little town I was growing up at that time uh, called Pre-Luki. and I entered the room the teacher was teaching about 20 30 kids at the, that time and since then I never looked back just uh, I joined that circus studio and learn how to juggle, tumble, uh, clowning, and, uh, even magic, you know, so, but juggling caught my eye since I was 11 years old, and um, just, I was better into this than the rest of disciplines, stick to it since then, that was my quick story, how I began.
0: And who was your, your first teacher? Did you have a, a teacher that uh, was your primary teacher in the beginning? In the beginning, was the
1: main teacher, the, just the general teacher, Alex Grusin, and he was a juggler before, and before he became teacher in uh, in this children's circus studio, uh, and he used to juggle like um, uh, big big objects like tables, <laughs> chairs, uh, little brooms, anything in around. The, his act was quite fabulous. He he juggled uh, objects around his, his room. And then that was his, uh, even the billiard uh, ball, billiard, something like that. Uh, so we were fascinated by that as a kids because, I, but uh, I, I, since, since I'm a kid, I, I like to juggle just balls. I didn't like bigger objects. So I stick to that. <laughs>
0: and what age were you when you started to specialize in juggling?
1: I was 11 because 11 I start to do a, 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 like little dance and break dance was a big it's a beginning of 80s so it was like breakdance was booming in the Soviet Union so I, and I was quite good in that and I incorporate three ball juggling with the breakdance and they act become more successful than the rest of my acts like clowning and uh, group acts or acrobatic so I, I started to like it that people likes what I do solo on stage and won a few festivals around that uh, Soviet era uh, Competitions between studios and children uh, uh, groups, and then oh, that that that's something people like. So I stick to that since I'm 11 years old.
0: And what age were you when you attended the circus school in Kiev?
1: Yeah, I was 15. That was exactly the year when Chernobyl blew up <laughs> uh, in Ukraine, and uh, we were actually postponed the exams to, into the school because we didn't know where the radiation will go, and. And I enter, that's exactly the year I will always remember because of that huge incident in in the world. And it was about 150 kilometers away from where I was uh, living. And we then got the phone calls to everybody, the students, and say, oh, the radiation went away from Kiev, so you're welcome to come back and join the circus
0: school. <laughs> and what is training like? What? How many hours per day would you focus on juggling or overall what's the day like and how much of that time would be spent purely on your act?
1: Uh, So the first two years and this is four-year circus school, right? So the first two years I would only do maybe two three hours a day on juggling uh, and the rest would be different disciplines including mathematics, physics and chemistry and literature because it was a college of circus arts. So, um, then second year would be a bit more on juggling, and the third year you, you can choose uh, are you gonna specialize on what discipline? So, I choose, of course, juggling. Then they dedicate full time for you only on juggling, and they give you um, choreographer and a choreographer, register, like director, um dedicated teacher, and you only spend like eight to ten hours a day just on juggling. You don't have to do anything else unless you sign up to it. So the f- third and fourth grade, two years in a row,
0: you just develop in Polish uh, just juggling routines. What was the name of the choreographer that helped you develop your act?
1: Um, the first act I developed, it was a breakdown juggling, but more like advanced, like I'm trying to push that idea. It was uh, Nikolai Baranov. It was quite famous, if you know Gennady Kiel. Uh, Genady Kiel was one of the uh, jugglers that kind of graduated in 1987, I think, from circus school, and it was directed by uh, Nikolai Baranov, and he won a silver medal in Cirque du Monde that year, 201987, was a huge success. Kind of interesting juggler.
0: Now I know there's a uh, a story behind your act. Could you tell us what the story of your act is?
1: The act with uh, the first act that I graduated with was. I wanted to be like an alien. <laughs> it's because I went to see a Terminator movie, and that time it's like '89, I think, the '90s or something. Uh, and there was a the bad guy arrived in the alley, and the aura ball was around him like a like a lightning ball, and he just was nude, stand up and move. And I, I just glimpsed at that moment as oh I want to build something like that. So I instantly start next week or two looking around the city where can I find this kind of ball that I can come up with and I saw a vitrine on a supermarket like a general superstore and it was advertisement of various objects like perfumes and there were like half of the glass ball, half glass balls hanging on the wires advertisement perfumes. So I said oh if I take those two halves and put it together it will be a ball. So I paid two bottles of vodka to uh, guy, this one was a cleaner, a night uh, guard there, and he stole it from me basically. Because <laughs> you cannot get it.
0: Was that the act you did with Cirque du Soleil, or this was before that? Oh no, that was like
1: 1991, 92, when I started to develop the act to
0: go to Cirque du de Demac, way before Cirque du Soleil. And how did you go from your circus training to your first professional engagements? What type of jobs did you do initially?
1: Well, I the, the saga was, of course, going to the uh, Ukrainian army, so I basically was forced to leave the U- Ukraine state or Ukrainian country in that time, not yet even country, it was a state. I had to leave because the army was following me, they wanted to recruit me to army, it was uh, mandatory in that time. One of my friends said, you just had to leave for two years and don't, don't come back. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I have this little act with the ball, glass ball that I come out and three ball. And I go to Poland because that was the easiest one. And I work in various restaurants for like $5 a show a day almost. Restaurants and cabarets, whatever, they hire me. For two years, I never even came back to Ukraine. Just work for this miserable money surviving living in very poor conditions but i could not come back otherwise they take me to army (laughs) and then at that time i saved all this whatever i could and make advertisement advertisement all the time prints and make costumes i I even bought my own sewing machine and i start to sew my own costumes to to do a few different acts and i built half an hour show with various acts uh, with my ex-wife and then we start to perform for like $60, $70 a show, you know, because mm-hmm. it's half an hour. We built more advertisement around and we sent around Europe. And that was 1991, 1992. And in 1993, I was hired to, to do not so good normal circus in Switzerland. And I did a like full tour with them on, in Switzerland in, that, in 1993 where I was spotted by different promoters and Cirque de Dumas
0: in Paris, the festival in Paris. You had a couple of big competitions. What were your experiences like at Cirque du Ma? Did you, did you win an award? Was that a good experience for you? In Cirque du
1: came it, it was one of my dreams at that time to to really participate in there. So when when producers from Cirque du Ma came, just asked me, can I participate or not? I was like, of course. I start seriously working on my act much more strongly because it was not really ready, and I, I didn't perform it so much. So within six months, I was just concentrating on that. Then went to Sérgio Dama, really nervous, basically, and I take my glass bowl, the new one that I freshly made, and on the customs, uh, actually, they broke it because they wanted to put it through the scanning machine, and it just didn't fit, and it completely demolished the ball. So I had to glue it right before the act, quite nervous. But uh, it went well. I uh, won a medal, silver medal there. I won four other awards, you know, Spinny awards, whatever they gave me, Moulin Rouge awards. But the bottom line is, I got a lot of exposure and met a lot of interesting people and producers. And the first one was Carmen Bajot. That was Moulin Rouge, and they, she she proposed contract to Moulin Rouge right away. So my very first contract after six de was Moulin Rouge, and. I, that gave me a little bit uh, like a little jump start in, into my um, future work.
0: Now, in a situation like Cirque de May, with all that pressure, what advice can you give to to jugglers who want to compete or want to be in these these big stages about handling the pressure, about controlling the nerves? Any tips you can give about that?
1: I, I would say learn to enjoy it more than uh, don't, more than prove it to anybody because once once you enjoy, you're gonna take that nerves energy into your benefit and you will enjoy more because that's your adrenaline. You take it as a negative if you wanna prove something. You don't have to prove, you have to prove to yourself. Just if you enjoy it, you will be always better, showing a better result. But yes, I would say don't put any new tricks into your routine. If you are going to compete in bigger stages that you are not sure, just don't put it. My teacher said, okay, which trick do you want to put it there? I said, this one, this one, this one. I said, which one do you do 11 times out of 10? It's like, none of it. Don't put none of it. Right. Like, I don't have an act, so don't perform. Practice then before you go in. This <laughs> was, like, really rough. He never give me any tricks to, to allow me any trick put in the act until I really showed to him that I do it 10 out of 10, of course. But he called it 11 out of 10.
0: And how long was your uh, engagement with the Moulin Rouge? Just three
1: months. Three months? Yeah, I was just lucky to replace some other artists that were injured, uh, just going in there and then Lido saw me there uh, and then clericals, because they own Lido. The family saw me and invited me to Lido like two years later.
0: And then what year did you start working with uh, Cirque du Soleil then?
1: 1999.
0: And how were you discovered for the Cirque du Soleil engagement?
1: After Moulin Rouge, I went to Friedrichstadt Palace, which was the biggest venue I ever worked. Then some people from um, Saltin banco came in 1995 it was in uh, and i performed my solo act already in, incorporate seven balls into it but five balls because i didn't like it but because it was bigger venue of producers asked me to to put not three balls but only put some more and then Sergi Soleil saw me there first time. They kind of talked to me a little bit, but I was like, wow, Sergi Soleil. I started to even look what is the show about because I didn't know so much about Sergi Soleil at that time. I saw Saldin Banco in, uh, in, in Berlin. It was a wonderful show. And then uh, later on, 1996, I went to Olympic Games opening ceremony in Atlanta to perform with the, with the show. And um, then Sergi Soleil saw me there again and then it was kind of more connection that we exchanged the numbers and and so on. Then I joined Lido within next two years and then they bought me back basically from Lido to go to Dralion.
0: At Dralion, were you still doing the earlier version of your act in the first productions of Dralion or had you moved to the act where the balls dropped from above you?
1: No, I never did that. That was just designed designed for Dralion at that time. Mm-hmm. I was more working with the glass ball kind of breaking the Last ball coming out and just keeping the seven balls with me type of act that I did for Lido. And I did new kind of costume for Lido. Same one that you saw in Dralion. That was done for Lido show because Lido is kind of sensual, erotic. So They asked me to do some costume that is much more in that direction. In Dralion, they liked the costume and Gila Liberté at that time was very, very involved in the creation process. So he said, I like that costume, keep it. So we kept that. So they just co- copied that costume for me, for Dralion. And then uh, I said, I'd like uh, the balls coming from the top. Always like that. But that was an opportunity in such a big production like Cirque du Soleil. So we kept the girl throwing me the balls.
0: And she portrays a goddess? Is, she, is the story that she is a goddess? In,
1: it was Azala. Yeah, air, air. Goddess of air.
0: I met you around that time. And I remember in 2000, around the millennium, you had a very big show for the New Year's Eve celebration. Can you tell us what that show was and where it was at?
1: Uh, it was, we were in Los Angeles. And uh, in Los Angeles, the uh, Barbara Streisand came to see the show. Uh, she was living there. And then she loved juggling, apparently. So she came back, asked for me. Uh, I was astonished. And then Marty Erlichman gave me his card and said, call me in a week. So I call and they suggest that I maybe participate in the Millennium um, night show in MGM Grand in Las Vegas, when she does two shows there for that night, 31st of December 1999. Of course, I get off Sergei Soleil, they let me go and I um, perform with her there, as a, just as a guest performer. She always said that she when she was a kid, she loved juggling. So I, when she saw Dralion, she, I remind her of her childhood, whatever it was touched her heart, so she <laughs> decided to <laughs> To, to keep that that feeling during this millennium night. Because she was paranoid a little bit during millennium because I remember, it was kind of a saga. What is gonna happen? What is gonna happen at the end of the world and stuff like that. <laughs> so she said, I need something warmer, something something that I, I feel in, intuition that I, she needs that. So that, that was my kind of lucky.
0: Plus I remember when I met you, you had this beautiful sports car and basically that engagement paid for the sports car, if I'm not mistaken, because you were very well compensated for that performance.
1: Yeah. Well, it was already, yeah,
0: I, I had
1: a $50,000 for a show and, I, and that car was 52. So I said, okay, it's almost, almost paid <laughs> off.
0: Not bad. I was talking to the juggling historian, David Kane, and he said to ask you about the train station incident. Oh my God. I'm not sure what that is, but maybe you could uh, tell us what the train station incident's all about. <laughs>
1: yes this is if you really want to hear this is not such a good story it cost me a lot of money that story so basically do you know my job machine how it looks like
0: well we had you in the show at the IJA it's a big machine that's mounted to the top of one of the risers above but it's fairly large as I remember
1: Yes, that's exactly that machine, and when I came back
0: probably somewhere from
1: Europe around, uh, I don't remember, I was in Hong Kong, I flew back to Berlin, we were in Berlin, uh, I was in Friedrichstadt Palace, it's 2009 already, I left Dralion, and I worked in Friedrichstadt Palace again, but this machine, if you imagine two, three tubes, in three tubes they are filled with balls, and they have motors that in the bottom of these tubes, that uh, distribute the balls down so then in the middle of this machine you have a little kind of a mechanism like an electronic with battery with the little sensors with the, like computer board almost that is remotely controlled and pre-programmed especially by time so you have a timer there so you have three patronage of the balls like 10 balls 10 balls and 10 balls right and balls are filled with uh, semolina is uh, what I use the balls are uh, just Half sand, kind of, right? So you have a substance inside the box. So imagine how it looks on this X-ray. So now the story begins that I'm arriving in the train station. I have the ball drop machine. I have uh, my glass ball. I have another props, and I have like three bags. So when I arrive in Berlin, I unload machine. I go back to another b- bag. I try to unload, but the door closed and we left. So the ball drop machine with this special metal case that is locked is remain on the platform in Berlin train station.
0: So so the train is slung away, but your machine is still there.
1: So I put it, I go back to my seat. I wanted to pick pick it up. When I go back, the door is closed and we're moving. So I move to the next next station 15 minutes away. And then I took a taxi bag. I go in by taxi bag with the other two bags, like really heavy, you know, Russian, I say, I don't want to lose my drum ball machine, you know, it's important. I have a show tomorrow to do. I arrived to the train station about maybe half an hour later and I could not get in. There was a traffic, uh, there was a media around, there's a uh, lot of people and the police uh, make a, like a little line around, like a yellow line that you cannot enter. So I, I, they immediately told me that you cannot enter here. I say, no, my, uh, I, I forgot my bag. As soon as I, say, I forgot my bag, they, they basically handcuffed me in the back somebody. <laughs> and just, I don't even remember who, and just brought me uh, really quickly to some kind of van, and we went to the, they basically arrested me.
0: Do they think you left a bomb or something? Why, why did they arrest you?
1: Yes, that was and already in the news. They said there was a potential threat. There's a kind of special device left on the um, on the platform in the busiest train station in Europe, and and the robot came to see to make a scan to what it is. And they saw mechanism with the battery, with the timer, with the patronage of 30 volts substance inside. They had no, they definitely thought this a bomb. (laughs) Did
0: did they destroy it? Did they try to blow it up or something?
1: They tried, they but I don't know. They, it was still there, and they showed me on the video, like, and the robot uh, next <laughs> and showed me on the video. What is this? This is your machine, your bag. I say yes, my bag. What is this? And they really were rude to me in the beginning, but then when I told them I'm a juggler, I'm just trying to bring, I forgot it, and so on, so on. Of course the story didn't believe in the beginning and then they show me picture of x-ray pictures and I say well, and you tell me this is juggling equipment <laughs> and it looks like a bomb I'm telling you it was so funny I was shaking but then it's just really interesting. So I say oh, this is exciting it's like a movie and everybody's the, the train station was blocked it was like media around and police and lights crazy so then they took it uh, to the room and say, okay, what's the code? I give them the code, they, people open it, bring me a, one ball, cut it. I said what it is inside, I showed them the trick, like a little contact juggling. <laughs> they were like, start to laugh a little bit. But you, you know that you're in trouble, they told me. So I say, yeah, but I need a lawyer. <laughs> so I hired the lawyer and we kind of get away with a little bit of money because so it was not
0: my fault, but they charged me for to, to all the costs and stopping the trains. Because they thought it was a bomb, they had to do all this stuff.
1: Yes. Even though it yes. wasn't,
0: they charged you for the fact that you left it behind. It was not my fault, but, but in the result, it cost
1: a lot, a lot of money to this. And so my lawyer had to fight that they they could simply block one line instead of blocking the entire station. It was like hundreds of thousands of dollars mm-hmm. damage. and But he kind of argued, so I basically paid for one line that was blocked for an hour and a half.
0: Yeah, this year I was at the Israeli Juggling Festival. They brought me out as a guest. And one day I was coming back to my room and they wouldn't let me go there because there was a suspicious, suspicious package someone had left in that area, and they closed everything down, and I couldn't get there for a couple of hours, and it was a pot of cooking oil that someone had <laughs> left behind, so I, I could see where that could happen. I'm sorry you lost your prop, and that cost you so much money, but that, that did give you a good story, though.
1: Yeah, but they gave me a prop bro- back. They just cut one, cut one ball, that's all. They could not
0: take the prop,
1: yeah. Now, if they see my drop machine now that is pre-programmed with the sequence, and. This is, like, high-tech. That would be even more... (laughs) The other one was simple compared to this, the current one.
0: You started with Dralion. How many different productions of Cirque du Soleil have you been with?
1: I did Dralion and Amaluna. I did Dralion almost seven years, and then I left for four years and came back to
0: Amaluna. Now, I saw you also in uh, Teatro's in Zani in Seattle, where you did a, a dinner theater, where you played a character throughout the entire show. Yes. Do you like that experience? How would you compare the two experiences from, like, this... Spiegel tent dinner theater compared to the experience you have with Cirque du Soleil?
1: Well, it's absolutely, to be honest,
0: impossible to
1: compare because you work for a corporation like Cirque du Soleil with the production and you are performing in front of 2,500 people around you and you have basically you have to deal with the corporation all the time, which is a downfall. Mm. But the positive that you you really center stage with such an amazing amount of energy flowing to you from the 2,500 people, which 5,000 eyes, almost every show. And then tour and the different schedule. And then you really, it's another world. Uh, And then you have Zinzani. Everybody you know, you drink with the owner. It's a family. And then you you create that you want to change this, you do it. It, It's it's an organic work that you enjoy that. But you miss that. 100% It's 100% concentration on you during the act because people come to see the dinner, they eat, they maybe watch, if somebody's drinking, it's, this is, uh, that's the downfall there. But you have an advantage of having this organic family movement and you, you really can cook your art, artistry and change whatever you want.
0: When I've seen you, you've always, you have such good charisma on stage, so any character you play, it just seems like you add so much just by being on stage, even if you're not the focus of the action. Did you have drama training as part of your circus education? No, I, I attend
1: classes, uh, acting classes, and I, I played a few movies when I was younger, maybe around 20s as an actor. I, I always liked that. But I, I'm an awful actor. if you Because I took classes, I understood that, oh, shit, I really suck.
0: <laughs> well, I've always enjoyed you in the shows I've seen. Out of all the years with uh, Cirque du Soleil, what were some of the high points? Was there any particular show where you thought this is the epitome of what Cirque du Soleil can offer, like an experience that, whether there are celebrities or a special gala, what do you think is the high point of your Cirque du Soleil career? I think it was two times performing in the Royal Albert Hall.
1: Uh, That's a special venue that I, I always remember that, okay, if I see the rally on, it's two times that we did, Royal Albert Hall in, in London it's just an incredible venue but besides that all these premieres and the, the celebrities it, it it touched me nothing not at all mm. I, I don't find it's it's actually just it's just a premiere gala it's all gimmicks but for me as a as a performer to really be in a special place the audience so picky you know they're not there to enjoy themselves they dare to just get something that they paid for. <laughs> it's really the English audience is tough. And sometimes some event, you, you, if you get them in Royal Albert Hall and they appreciate what you do, this is this was so satisfying in those moments. The venue itself, it's just hundreds of years of this history and everybody was there. Pavarotti in Australia, uh, Queen, you mentioned Montserrat know, uh, uh, Liza Minnelli. Anybody was there in this... <laughs> in that room, so that was special. And we are, in fact, we're gonna go with Amaluna to this show, it would be my last show in Royal Albert Hall with Sergi Soleil, actually.
0: You've told me this is your last year with Cirque du Soleil, that in 2016, you plan to go in a different direction. Is there a reason you decided to, to leave after this year? There's uh,
1: multiple reasons, uh, multiple reasons. First, the biggest reason is the, the change of Cirque du Soleil direction. That it was sold to a corporation. Now it's not the same company anymore. It's uh, hard to to comprehend and work with a corporation that is uh, doesn't make an artistic decision, but corporate. That's, uh, that's the main reason, which is big con- big conversation is topic huge topics. It's not gonna be discussed now, but that's one thing. And I know the company too too well, and I respect it a lot since 1999 I work. So I know within from in, in the little millimeters of the, the company system. So that's unsatisfying to me to see how the way it's going right now. But that's one thing. Another thing, it's going to Russia. Uh, and you you know I support Ukraine. I was a big supporter and against Russian propaganda at that time. And Maluna goes to Russia, end of next year. That was also mentioned. And another thing is um, in Amaluna in general, I, I just kind of burned out a little bit and uh, wanted to do something else. Yeah. And I have other venues. I'm getting not younger, so I, I have another idea, so I want to develop them. I just need to move on. So it was a mutual agreement between me and away. They just uh, they don't really care if I leave or not. It's just too corporate now. So if I mention that, they say, okay. And then, okay, <laughs> it's okay.
0: <laughs> now, in addition to being a juggler, you also have your own artist agency called the Art Vision Production. When did that come about, and what was your interest in creating your own agency for other artists? The thing is, when I was at Dralion, I I, I started working with my first student, Dima Shine,
1: uh, handstand, he was working with us in, uh, as an acrobat. 18, 19 years old in Dralion. And I started working on his act and it became a very successful act that we created. He won six gold medals in various festivals around the world. So now he's been performing with Service Soleil. second show already. He's in Zumanity in Vegas. He opened his own fitness center studio, huge one called Shine Alternative Fitness, successful businessman 10 years later. And, but in that time, I, I just said, oh, I, I need a structure to create some acts and maybe book some acts, manage just as a parallel job, because I always needed to do something else than just performing. And that was the, the, the push, kind of the first glimpse of an idea. And then me and my ex-girlfriend, Aurelia Katz, a famous performer, we open uh, Art Vision Production as a management company and an agency. And so under that umbrella, we, I create a few acts, create a few shows, manage some artists, and um, use an agency as a booking, book,
0: some acts for the various shows. And what do you look for in an act? What particularly excites you about another performer? Excite me is when performer is totally
1: within the storyline, within his character is tight. Mostly is when it's listened to the music and is very, very tight with the music. When performer listens and performs into the music and even more than just making four by four, you know, just really listens to it. And every trick is designed into that music piece. That excites me mostly.
0: Also, in addition to that, you're also a workshop leader. You've been doing master classes in juggling about the universal aesthetics of juggling, can you describe what you consider to be these universal aesthetics of juggling in kind of a simple way for us?
1: Generally, I just have my philosophy on uh, how juggling has to look. Uh, I, I see a, a juggling as a as a patterns, as a as a beautiful movement of objects in front of the uh, per person that person manipulates. You are behind that pattern, so it's you are not the performer to see. You you are showing the juggling routine, juggling tricks uh, around you to see exactly as, uh, how this trick will look aesthetically correct. Or maybe we can lose the aesthetics of the trick. Just doing the same trick. You can have the aesthetical look of it or you cannot. It still will be, okay, I'm going to toss five balls. But if I toss five balls too high or too ugly or not exactly... Uh, balls gonna fly, going in the same line so you don't see the pattern anymore we'll lose the aesthetics of the trick even simple and I always like to see the movement or the trick done correctly with the music in the, in the lines that are the, the best for especially for this trick if we identify what is the best looking trick that can be with the time with the music with the with the body with, with the movement and then incorporate the uh, acting incorporate how we move and how it's gonna be presented for the audience, all these little aspects come together and we say, okay, this is the most aesthetical look of this trick that we present to the audience.
0: Well, I know that because when I've seen jugglers before, like one of my favorite early jugglers was a a gentleman named Peter Davison. Yes. And you can see people do the same exact trick. It's the same exact trick. But one person, it looks wonderful. The other person, it doesn't look good. It's not just learning the trick, it's learning how to make the trick look the best possible for the audience.
1: Yes, exactly. And it's suitable to your character, suitable to the the, the exact moments in the show that you wanted to present. And same with the classical music. You have the same notes, right? But some musicians do it well, some musicians not. There are subtle subtle differences between execution of some certain movement or, or trick that identify, oh, this is aesthetically maximum correct, or this is maybe not so aesthetic. So I, I move towards the aesthetics. I move towards more simple to make difficult, then make difficult, simple, simple trick to look
0: difficult. Now, another thing you teach in your classes is a practice structure. What What is your philosophy about practicing and how to get better, the most efficient way?
1: Well, first of all, I always line up in three colors tricks. I always name my tricks. I have hundreds of tricks to name and then i say this trick i'm doing if i do it just roughly i put it in red if i do it oh. mostly better like five out of six, five, six out of ten i do it i put it in blue and if i do it very well 10 out of 10 i put it in black which is rare the more red on the paper you have the worse you're gonna you have to spend more time so for the red Tricks in red, I spend 15-20 minutes per trick to practice every, every day or every practice session. And then about 10 minutes, 7-10 to, 7 to 10 minutes per trick if it's in blue. And if it's black, I spend much less. But then I might just develop those in black tricks and try to move with them, incorporate more movement and the character.
0: And do you practice any props besides the balls?
1: Uh, no. Since I'm a kid, it's just... Uh, I did uh, j- juggling uh, act in Switzerland. I did second act was like with uh, rings, with uh, with clubs and bigger balls, just larger.
0: Now you're known of course for your amazing physique. Like your uh, physical uh, presence is is very impressive. What part does physical training play in your regime and how did you develop that uh, amazing Victor Key body? Since I'm maybe 22, 23 I uh, I
1: was about 70,
0: 70,
1: 70 kilo to 72 kilo. And I said, I'm, I always wanted to be like that. Just develop my maybe a little bit body definition. And I always look too paranoid about, looking. if I get like 72, I already like paranoid. Mm-hmm. I go every day I work out, every day I, it's a morning workout, a little bit uh, after the show, like today after the show, before I come here, we had an hour workout with the group. One hour, really, really hardcore workout. It's more like a, how say, monster workout that they advertise online, you know?
0: Yeah, kind of like a CrossFit, like with, with weights and...
1: Yes, yeah, so almost like that. It's just nonstop and you, until you just almost die, and then, okay, and then we go shower and then we go have a cigar, whatever we want to do. After each show, we do this.
0: And what kind of cigars does Victor Key recommend?
1: <laughs> what are your favorites? Oh, my my favorites in Partagas number two and Monte Cristo number two and Edmundo Monte Cristo Edmundo.
0: And will that help your juggling? That after a show to relax with a cigar? Is that a, a tip? Well, I the cigars for me is just I am too hectic
1: all my day and I have so many things to do and with the foundation and with the art vision with, the, with my other things and then suddenly I I just enjoy that I can dedicate one hour of just smoking cigar and just talking with my friend or something. It just gives me that hour of really not thinking about anything. I, I learned how to do that, and that that brings me back balance, I think, because I, I, I'm actually very active in general.
0: I know you also love the game of golf. What attracts uh, you to golf, and how are the parallels between golf and juggling? Have you discovered any? Oh, yes, it's a big parallel. You know, the, the, it's a similarity,
1: actually. Because in juggling, you never have become better, the, the best you want to be. And golf, the same. You're always a student, <laughs> and there's an infinite possibility of improvement. It's same. It's just if you don't practice, you get worse. You can,
0: if you practice, you get lost. It's too much practice. You also get lost. <laughs> I found myself getting very frustrated. I played golf for many years. It's like juggling, it's such a combination of mental and physical. It's a lot more difficult than it looks. And you can get lost in it for years and years to try to develop ability to play. It's it's an amazing game. One amazing game. And it's such a beautiful technique. And what is interesting, that juggling, you don't try to
1: prove to anybody. If you really love juggling, you don't prove to anyone what you are. You prove to yourself, mostly, first of all. And golf is the same. You against yourself. And this is juggling the same. And uh, the technique, the, the detail of a small change that can make a difference is the same as in golf. And so I enjoy that and also traveling because it fits with my tour, with my lifestyle that I enjoy that you never have the same shot again. Anyway in the world, you never have the same, it's like not never have the same stage. The same. You always, if you're moving, you always have a new, new show, it's fresh. You never have the same routine to do because you do it for just another time and it's now. It's not repeating anything, it's just so fresh. So for me, this is a lot of similarities. And I like the fact that you'd never golf or do a round say, with same shots all the time. It's just always different.
0: And like you said, when you travel to see different golf courses, because golf courses can really be very, very beautiful aesthetically. They can be very beautiful places to walk around and spend some time. So yeah. I imagine in your travels, you've been to a lot of different wonderful courses. Yeah, amazing courses, yes.
1: My favorites are in Asia and in Colorado. These two places. It's, there's a beautiful courses anywhere in the world. I, the only I haven't been is in New Zealand. This is something I dream to go.
0: Now, I know you're very busy, but even though between all these different activities, you found the time to create your own foundation to give back, which I find very admirable. Can you tell us a little bit about the Victor Key Foundation and what your philosophy is?
1: Uh, yes, Victor Key Foundation. It's basically, we. I always wanted to come back to the roots where I grew up. When I grew up, was six, five, six, seven, eight years old. I was given the choice of of practicing the circus arts, which was governmental, governmental institution given to me for free. It was a children's circus studio. And the teacher was paid by government and just teach kids and inspire us and show us what the circus world is about then suddenly it doesn't exist like in Ukraine. And I always dream to be involved in that, to give back, because I think now that the nonprofit organizations are replacing and supposed to replace those before government-funded organizations, because government don't fund this stuff anymore, especially Circus become a little bit outside. But Circus is such a beautiful, strong social involvement in the, in the communities, and especially for children. Because I was a victim of it for luck, and I'm lucky that I was. I wanted to always uh, give back. So for a start, I said, I'm going to open my foundation, uh, have an umbrella, pro- proper non-profit organizations with a good uh, team, and I will go around, put together teachers and uh, volunteers, educate kids in regions of poverty that don't have these organizations that I grew up with in Ukraine. And we went to Argentina, Uruguay, some in the states, we went to Kenya. The last project was recent, was in Kenya in Nairobi. We incorporate with the kids around that in the hospitals, the sick kids, autistic, blind, and with the brain disorders. We bring them together and we introduce circus to to them as a form of joy and form of practice that they can get involved between each other and uh, an experience that that they can do something that no other people can do. Basically, this is a big step for for these kids. And we also incorporate local circus uh, studios or circus schools, if there are some, incorporate and we create a show and we invite all the other community kids to this show. It's
0: my projects like this. Yeah, you say that, that art helps the world, that bringing art helps the world. And I think that's a wonderful... That's my slogan. That's a wonderful philosophy and statement. And you've also created, like you said, this... You call the Juggling Therapy Project, which brings juggling to people with special needs, even people who have visual impairments and are completely blind. You develop ways for them to teach them to juggle.
1: Absolutely, that that happened. Um, I had this idea when I met Craig Quad. Craig, Craig Quad is one of the like almost like occupational therapists in his mind. He's not certified, but he always wanted to help people in needs and especially with physical disabilities visually impaired, autistic, brain disorders, to incorporate juggling for them so they can learn juggling and have a skill, some kind of skill that they can show other people and and collaborate with them. And then uh, he designed different props to eliminate variables for blind, uh, eliminate variables for autistic to explain, and he teaches juggling with special props. And uh, I, I collaborate with him, and we come up with a few ideas and this project based on his ideas that we push forward, and we teach juggling even for blind right now. And this, this has become bigger and bigger
0: at the moment. Yeah, if you go to Victor's uh, website, the footage of uh, them teaching the blind gentleman to juggle using this prop that has sort of rails that keep the balls set in place right. is, is very, very moving to see. Uh... Yes, uh,
1: if anybody interested or has friends uh, that are visually impaired and if you want to introduce juggling to them, this is the thing to do. For example, just watch VictorKeyFoundation.com and you have a juggling therapy on this project. We have a few videos and there was a documentary on the person that we teach juggling. And this called shuffleboard, we designed it specially blind with the special rails and the special cuts that he can hear the, when the ball arrives and leaves, how far it goes away. And also um, with Jay Gilligan, he donated to us an idea of a prop that is parallel juggling with uh, on, like a little wall and you move the balls from side to side. It's beautiful as well. And uh, it's amazing for this kind of uh, kids or people as well. For, and it's beautiful. So um, research on that, spread it, the news. I, I, I love to see on the, in juggling conventions, in the shows. I'd like to see one blind juggler come and just show what he can do. It would be beautiful.
0: Yeah, we worked with a juggler, me and my partner, that had been visually impaired for one of the TED conferences. Mm-hmm. And obviously, both of our loves for juggling is so strong. So when we can share it with anybody, especially people who you probably think wouldn't be able to take advantage of the juggling it's a very powerful thing to be able to bring it to somebody who didn't think they could do it. And you give them the tools to be able to be successful, I think is great.
1: Yes, it would be amazing because you don't these people don't have so much possibilities to express themselves. And if they can express themselves that are visually seen as a performance, hello. And also these people can show something that most of the people around them cannot do. So they become special. And to give that feeling that somebody is special when you are not usually big grew up that you're blind, you're always dis- disabled and limited and now suddenly you can be, have something possessed that you are special. This, this is grand.
0: Well, I really congratulate you. I think that's a very worthwhile idea and a wonderful project to get behind. Now, was this the year that you did the cross-country tour? I know you did a tour to raise awareness of your foundation. Was that this year? No, I did the tour only for Ukraine, Raise Awareness of Ukraine
1: uh, crisis. And that was before I formed my foundation. That was a project, my personal project to support Ukraine in, in the fight for freedom and all this saga with Russia And that came up later. And so that was my personal kind of social commitment to, to my country.
0: And you drove a, a car across country doing promotion along the way or media to, to raise awareness for Ukraine? Yes. The
1: idea was to take the Ukrainian flag and take, uh, sit down in a car. I put, uh, painted my car with this special Ukrainian swastik and American. And we go across the country, like around 5,000 miles across the USA, and meet real American people and make them sign wishes on the Ukrainian flag. So we had over 30,000 wishes on Ukrainian flag written. And then we send this flag to... Ukraine, the main square, to put in there, makes like a little bit of promotion to just say, okay, people from America, real people, not just from television and politicians, supports Ukraine. That was the main thing. And then a lot of media came along because it was a kind of noble and right place to, to join me. And there was about 12 TV stations that follow. And I did talk shows, uh, variable appearances in the news uh, shows, and etc. et, cetera, et cetera, along the way.
0: In uh, America, there's a big division between juggling, is it an art, or juggling, is it a sport? W- what is your definition of juggling? I think both has a um, right to exist. <laughs> my, my
1: definition juggling is uh, it's 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 an art, but because it's technical, it can be applied as a sport as well. I would love to see it move in both directions very well. Why not? Because art, if it's an art, it's a little bit Needs more in theater and uh, and the acting and and the movement and so on so on. So you kind of dissolve actually the technical side of juggling. It will also be difficult with the movement, but it's hard to define. But if it's strictly, really strictly sport, it's I like it too. Uh, on my opinion, it has a right to exist. But it then has to be just sport. There's no no nothing about it about any effects. Any, any
0: artsy part around. Have you watched combat juggling? And what do you think about that? Yeah, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've never played, though, because that's a, obviously a club juggling-oriented... The, yeah, I, yes, I know. And you, you know the Kung Fu jugglers. Well, the first time I played, literally within five minutes, someone whacked me in the wrist pretty hard with a club. And I thought... <laughs> I don't like this game. This game isn't for me, so I, I never play it again. I have kind of a mixed feeling. I sometimes think of it as sort of the roller derby of juggling. Like To get people interested in juggling, we had to add some violent element to it. Well, I don't think it's juggling. It's just juggling games. Oh, yeah. No, it's fun. I, I recently saw the uh, what they call Fight Night when I was in Israel. And when you see people play really well, like this Emil Dahl or Wes Peden, you really get an re- appreciation that it really could be a very good spectator sport. Because it's pretty exciting to see people who are really good at it.
1: Yeah, it's true. But you know, Daniel, it's like uh, if I see it this way: if anything that can bring uh, another side of juggling visually to other people is fine. We just need to promote it. it, it like any other, the more audience we can get from every side, diversify. Let's say, <laughs> juggle, make it popular. <laughs>
0: yeah, in the whole time you've been involved with juggling, me as well. Why do you think that juggling? hasn't gained more popularity. Like if you look at the same time that I've been involved, you have an activity like triathlon, which came along uh, years ago. It was very small. And now it's this multi-billion dollar industry. And here we have juggling, which seems more accessible and cheaper and and easier for everyone than something like that, which never gained any popularity. Why do you think juggling is an activity that hasn't captured the imagination of of more people, of the masses? Mm, It's an interesting question. Too hard initially, you think, or learning curve? Or do people have an image of it as kind of a geeky activity?
1: No, I think because lately people need, it's more like a quick information, quick get in, get out. And, and juggling can't be like that. It has to be more like a hobby and dedicate a lot of time to it. So you cannot spread so much like normal jogging, for example, you know, that doesn't need a skill.
0: Yeah, it's like the frisbee or something. You can pick up a frisbee and toss it back and forth and have fun kind of right away. And then it generates masses. When they generate masses, it generates more funds. When generate
1: more funds, you have media. You have media. You have exposure. You have exposure. You have movement. And it's gonna grow. With, this, with the less people, nobody cares. So Jugman has not so much um, people. That's why.
0: Well, I know this next this next year that the IGA has planned to offer a ten thousand dollar prize for their individual championships. Would that, would that encourage Victor Key to compete at all? Or is that something you would have no interest in doing? Not interest. <laughs> I guess there was also like Russians Got Talent. Here we have America's Got Talent. What do you think about these televised talent shows? Business, they ask me every year
1: and i never want to compete that because first of all i'm much older to compete i don't want to stay there and somebody tell me how bad i am or how should i do uh, something the person that knows nothing about what i do (laughs) it it makes no sense i rather perform in monte carlo festival that has a jury that actually knows me and and respects what i do and then if i do bad they just put a number. I don't have to be talked on the TV in front of other public. You know? <laughs> I don't think it's nice. That, But it creates buzz. It creates exposure. It's okay.
0: Yeah, it's not for everybody. It's uh, We just had our finals last night and they, they chose the winners. And like you say, the, the, the panel of judges is very uneducated, especially when it comes to variety. So it's tough yeah. when someone has no idea what you're doing and then they judge you.
1: So that makes no sense. It's like if I'm going to go and judge sport, and I have no idea. And I'm going to even tell them after their performance why I didn't like it in front of the other people. Why would I do this? It's a sport guy. That I have no idea what he did. And I'm going to tell him, oh, I didn't like it because you didn't smile to me. You know, something like that. That It's just irrelevant. Absolutely makes no sense to me. But it's the business.
0: Yeah, you know how it is. It's show business. And at a certain point, unfortunately, it's not always just the, the most talented that rises to the top. It's who can kind of play the game to the best of their ability. As well, to get the exposure, to get the, the credentials that they need, and to get yeah. the, the TV appearances.
1: I think, uh, what was that, America got talent uh, uh, when the, the, what was the name? Oh, no, British got talent, the, this guy, the dragon magic, magic dragon. Yeah,
0: he's on, he's on our, he's Piff the Magic Dragon.
1: Yes, he's incredible. I love him. I mean, I, I met him before in Vegas. Uh, we saw the show when he was performing there in Cosmopolitan. But the, the performance he did it was such a twist, right? Because he goes directly and took it with the, guy, with the jury, uh, with the judges and stuff, and bring the judge out on the stage and make the help. It was quite a, interesting, like a twist. And I understand because it's a laugh, it's a funny, it's just sarcastic. So people got into it and he goes through and it's just like a snowball.
0: Well, it shows, the, the, shows you the importance of character. And speaking of character, how important is character for a juggling act? And how does the person sort of develop a character, especially with an act purely to music? How do they express themselves through nonverbal means?
1: I think if it's, if you play a character that belongs to you, if you play yourself, it's gonna be so much easier. I, I don't like to see usually people try to come up with a story and a character of something that they just like but they are not. And it's hard, especially then with the juggling. You take five, seven balls and they're already out of the car. So I think I like to see just a person, not really a character, but individuality as a, as, a, as a personality strike me the
0: most of the,
1: of this performer. And I wanted to learn who is the performer
0: rather than learning who, who is the character that he wants to try to play. So you want to know more about the person, like what's organically true Correct. That yes. you can use for your character as opposed to having an idea that you think is good. Let's play Frankenstein. Wow. Why? <laughs> I'll be, I'll be the juggling James Bond. I'll put the music on exactly. and exactly. So
1: it's not exactly it's too literal and too banal right now. I, I think that I think this is not the way to go in a circus. It's not you're not playing theater into a story. You incorporate theater, but it's more like an acting. You don't put like a story. Yeah, you can have, but it's your character, yourself, supposed to have, bring that environment. What is actually happening with you? And then you play it. That's my my idea. So I I just don't like to play other characters. Yeah, I can come up with this, like I did in Dralion, I come up with the spider because they come up, but I didn't play a spider, right? Right. Because I come up. (laughs) If I would play spider, that would be weird. So I still try to GSP myself.
0: But now you're playing a, would you say it's a lizard character? Yeah. You're getting ready to end your experience with Cirque du Soleil. What does the future hold for Victor Key? What are, you, what are your dreams for the future?
1: You know, I have two more ideas to create that I, I don't know if I will, all of them, all two. And it's um, two ideas for an act to involve, because i always always trying to change a little bit, involve my act. Not necessarily all the tricks, but just organically the act with, the, with different shows. And the other idea that I wanted to work right now, I'm moving away and trying to incorporate the act that I do now, but a little bit different and separate from this uh, theater. But right now it's a theatrical story that is a Caliban, Shakespearean, lizard, human, whatever, trying to juggle. That's one thing. I wanted to make it more uh, that I, Victor Kick, try to juggle, <laughs> you know, not just that. Mm-hmm. Then the other one, if another big production comes, that I have another bigger idea for a little bit bigger act, which is, uh, will be a surprise for everybody if I'll do it. But it, so far, it's so little bigger production that can support my idea because you need, uh, like Friedrichstadt Palast, for example, can, can have that possibility or du Soleil. But I don't see uh, me coming back to du Soleil anymore uh, in the future. So we'll see.
0: Now, Victor, we've come to the end of our podcast. The hour went pretty fast. Hopefully you had a good time. Hopefully you're enjoying your cigar as we're talking. Sure, I do, yes. And I enjoy the time. Which really nice, nice. And do you have any parting words of wisdom for people who want to emulate the fantastic career that you've had? Any parting words that would help other jugglers?
1: Well, uh, what would you as a, as a... You're also a juggler, right, Danielle? I want to, to, to see what, what is your inspiration in, in juggling.
0: <laughs> for a professional, I would always say focus on lifestyle. As opposed to money or or anything else decide what you want to do for your career like how you would enjoy would you want to travel would you like being on cruise ships would you prefer to be in one place for a long period of time so go more what fits Mm -hmm. you as a person as opposed to i feel this i have to get to cirque du soleil or corporates or some people are very happy being family entertainers some people are very happy being street performers so find what suits you the best, what suits your lifestyle the best, and focus on that. I think you'll be the happiest if you figure out a profession that sort of fits in with how you want to live your life.
1: Yes, that's true. Well, for me, for example, for next next year, I, frankly, I'm a little bit worried about what's going to happen. because. It's so comfortable to, to be always... I, I never had vacations more than one, one, one and a half months. So I had like two months vacation first and then I have Zinzani for three months, four months. I do a different character, different different act. Then I, I moved to Germany and work a little bit in Germany. But I, I don't know exactly uh, what's going what to be. But if I will choose, if I give me a choice to tour or to be on one place and work in one place, I take now in one place like a year ago you asked me i would say i bet a thousand dollars are gonna be i want a tour i'm so sick of touring now i want to just stay in one place i lose i i mean I miss my friends. I miss my family. I miss my building something that I can actually go and talk to people and not just Skypes. And I it become a little bit overwhelming how much I tour like years and decades already. So if I stay in one place, I'll be much more happy. And if I tour a little bit, okay, we'll see. But I'm definitely not stopping juggling at the moment. I'm just thinking about just transiting and doing a little bit less touring, and more concentrating on foundation and my art
0: production. Well, Victor, I wish you the best in the future. You're an amazing juggler, an amazing person. I've always enjoyed uh, the times I've got to spend with you. I've always thought you were a very uh, nice guy to invite me backstage at uh, Cirque du Soleil and, and yeah. share your, your wisdom with us here on the Drop Everything podcast. Thank you so much, Victor Key, for being on the podcast. That was great time with you. Thank you so much. And I, I'm looking forward to, to
1: see you one day and juggle more with you. Okay, Daniel. Thank you, Victor. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: Bye, Victor. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 20, my conversation with Victor Key. What a pleasure to talk to Victor Key all the way from Brussels, where he's on tour with Cirque du Soleil. A big thanks to our sponsor, the International Jugglers Association, Information about the International Jugglers Association, their yearly festival, and all their activities can be found at juggle.org. Join the IJ, Join the greatest group of jugglers in the world. Also a big thanks to my engineer, Karen Holzman, all the people who are enjoying the podcast. Uh, if you have any feedback, go to my personal coaching website, braindrizzles.com. And of course, if you're interested in coaching, set up a free consultation and we can talk about what I can do for you and your career. Well, that's all for me. Drop everything except when you're juggling.